This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, October 9th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, Most of you know my name is Sam. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 27, so if you turn there, I'm going to get right to it because we've got a lot to read, and then we'll break it down to see what the Lord has to tell us. Genesis chapter 27 verse 1 says this, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim, so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son? And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow. Go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Isaac, Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. You shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy dude, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and he took them, brought them to his mother. His mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. And Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And he went to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, Hmm, how is it that you found this so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord granted me success, of course. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went, to, went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, well, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him and said, Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. And he said, Okay, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, Well, come near and kiss me, my son. And so he came near and he kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, mm, See the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. So may God give you the dew of the heaven and of the fatness of the earth and the plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curse you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob scarcely had gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau's brother came in from his hunting He also prepared delicious food, brought it to his father, and he said to his father, 
Let my father rise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And his father's Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, the cheater? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved the blessing for me, Father? Isaac answered and said, Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. And then can I do, what then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching and then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I'll send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of these Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? This is God's Word. Pretty crazy story, and we need to backtrack a little bit so you understand the context of the story. Genesis 25 kind of gives us a couple ideas or at least truths that are really important to know so that we can make sense of what is here in Genesis 27. You see, similar to his father before him, Abraham, at about the age of 60, he and his wife didn't have any children. His wife was barren. And so it had been about 20 years of marriage together. And Rebecca had no children, so he pleaded to the Lord. He said, Lord, please let us have a child. And the Lord answered that prayer, and Rebecca became pregnant. And as her belly grew, it got really big, and her stomach started to feel like some kind of pro wrestling tournament going on. And she's like, what is going on in my stomach? And so she asked the Lord, Lord, what is going on? In my belly, and the Lord answered her in Genesis 25-23. He said, look, you got twins, sister. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Put that on the shelf for a second, because that is what the Lord has said. Eventually, she does give birth to these two twins. One boy who comes out looking like some kind of red-skinned Wookiee, 
and another boy who exits the womb holding on to his brother's foot on the way out. The older woolly mammoth of a kid, they name Isaac, which means he's hairy. And the younger named Jacob, meaning he's a cheat. So he's hairy, he's a cheat. Those are the two children of Isaac. And as the boys grow up, the affections for each of these children grow in the parents, but just one for the other. And again, Genesis 25 tells us that Isaac loves Esau. Loves to eat his game. Loves that he's a hunter. Just loves Esau. And in the same verse it says, Rebekah loves Jacob. God's chosen family is divided between daddy and his big hunter and mommy and her little helper. And so after one of Esau's grand hunting trips, he returns to the house where Jacob is busy making stew. And Esau comes in famished back in Genesis. And he says, give me some of that stew or I'm going to die, Jacob. And Jacob's pretty crafty. And he says, hmm, finish an opportunity. He's like, I'll give you some stew, bro, if you give me your birthright. Now, birthright was when you divided your inheritance amongst the number of sons you had plus one. So if you have two sons, you add a third. So you have three allotments, and two of those go to the firstborn. So if you have four kids, right, you make it five, and two go to the firstborn. So what he's offering or asking for or negotiating for is two-thirds of the material inheritance that Isaac has for both stew. And so Esau thinks about it. Okay. And he takes the stew and as he fills his belly, we get this sense later on that in that moment he also emptied his heart. Even though Esau will later call Jacob a cheat of robbing him of his birthright. We notice that right after the stew, right after he fills his belly, probably when he's about to take a nap, he's not complaining at all. He thinks he's either struck a deal or perhaps he doesn't think it's legitimate. The Scriptures actually put a lot of responsibility, and negatively so, on Esau who sold his birthright when he didn't have to. In pride, the Bible says, he despised or otherwise rejected his birthright, which was more connected with his God-given identity, his God-given responsibility. He despised that. He rejected that. We can imagine that if we'd asked Esau in the moment, why, why would you... That sounds really dumb. Why would you do that? That perhaps his response might be something like, well, what choice did I have? Really, what choice? I, I was going to die, right? I mean, I, I needed in that moment to take control of my life because clearly God was not helping me. He was not in control seeing I was about to die. Sound familiar? God clearly is not in control. I need to take control. This is what Genesis 27 really is all about. Control. 
And the truth is, each and every one of us is either going to attempt to control our lives or we're going to surrender control to God. And seeing that, biblically speaking, God is in control whether we surrender or not, the choice that we're really faced with is whether we're going to follow His will or fight it. Whether we're going to receive His ways or try and make our own. This is a story really about four different people. Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. All who in an effort to fight for control in their life find that they are in fact fighting against God Himself who does not lose. As we begin here, we see the first of the attempts through Isaac. At the end of Genesis 26, he is about 100 years old, it's presumed. The Bible teaches that he dies at 180, but his death isn't recorded much later until Genesis 35. So it's unlikely that he's 180 here, because a lot of things transpire before his death. It's possible he's 101. Maybe he's 110. Who knows? It's a few years, most likely past 100. The text does say that Isaac is old. His eyesight is failing physically, and we see later that he really can't see much spiritually as well. He calls his favorite son, his favored son, his boy, Esau. He tells him that, you know what? I don't know exactly when am I going to die. It could almost be any moment, which is really not true. He's not on his deathbed here, though he makes it out as if he is. For some reason, he is initiating a ceremony earlier than is necessary. As men, fathers, got down to the end of their life, they would initiate these ceremonies, but they were never done in advance. This is likely 50 to 60 years in advance. He's planning ahead. For some reason, he's also initiating the ceremony in kind of a, a secretive way. But he calls Esau. He says, you know how much I love the game you hunt. Why don't you go out, prepare a last supper for me so that I can bless you before I die. And Esau, he's excited about this. He's already lost two-thirds of his inheritance. And the blessing that the Father gives you is much more valuable. It's pretty strange that Isaac only calls Esau because typically a father would gather all his sons, bless each one of them with a blessing. And it really would be a time of celebration. As each blessing was personal to the child and what would happen to their future, it was also very public and it would be something for the entire family to appreciate. And as I said, Isaac's doing this secretly, and I would argue disobediently. There are actually rules in Deuteronomy 21 about this initiative ceremony, like how you did this, and that was to ensure that the father didn't show favoritism to one son or the other. He is called his favorite son because he wants to bless his favorite son with divine prosperity and ensure his authority over the family. The assumption is, however, that Isaac knows what Rebekah was told by God. 
what we put on the shelf back from Genesis 25. It's certainly possible that Rebecca never told Isaac that it was a private conversation, but it's pretty unlikely. Isaac knows that God has stated something very specific, and that is that the younger will serve the older. And the implication would be that this was going to be a direct result of this patriarchal, fatherly blessing that he would give. And the blessing is irrevocable. The blessing is non-transferable. When it's done, it's done. And what we see here is Isaac trying to get around God's stated will. He is attempting to control the future. God has said, this is what it's going to look like. This is the way it's going to be in God. And Isaac's like, I don't know if I like that. So secretly, way in advance, privately, he brings his son very deceptively so that he can try and wrestle control of his future, of his family, and for his son away from God. In many ways, he rejects God's will and he replaces it with his own. Instead of accepting what God has said, I want, he's like, I'm going to pursue what I want. Now, Rebecca has her own control issues. She overhears Isaac's plan, and she wants to control the future for her favorite boy, Jacob. And so she makes a plan of her own to control the future. She calls her favorite son, Jacob, and says, I want you to obey exactly what I say. And so following her orders, Jacob grabs a couple of goats from the flock, brings them to his mother to prepare the meal exactly as dad likes it, just as he is requested of Esau. And her plan really is for Jacob to deceive his father, steal the blessing that is intended for his manly boy Esau. And Jacob is a little afraid that her plan's going to backfire, that he's going to go in and try to fake him out and it's not going to work and he's going to get a curse. And mom's like, don't worry, I'll take the heat for this if that happens. Just trust me. And because Esau is typically this red walking carpet of a boy who probably smells like yak urine of some kind, mom takes his clothes, right? Takes his clothes, is like, put, put these on, right? And then takes goat fur and like straps it to his hands and behind his neck. So you got a guy with this yak urine covered coat and furry hands on his neck. Also, she can go to, or he can go to his blind father and he'll smell and feel like Esau. So he does. He kind of walks in there. Now, it's important that Rebecca, she heard the will of God. She knows what God has said, and she, he said it before, and when, well, when she was pregnant with the twins. And at that time, she said, look, the, the older is going to serve the younger. So there's the, the truth. The older is going to serve the younger. And it wasn't a, a statement like, well, my hope is that the, the older may serve the younger, should serve the younger. It was like, the older is going, shall serve the young. This is the way it's going to happen. The correct response when she overheard Isaac begin to, to plan to bless Esau would have been for her to confront Isaac and rebuke him. 
and say, you heard what God said. What are you doing 50 years in advance in this little private ceremony you got going on here? Should have rebuked him. Should have said, you are going against what God has said. But instead of relying on God's sovereignty, instead of trusting what God said despite what she could see going on, Rebecca decides to take matters into her own hands. More than that, she actually believes that in order to ensure God's blessing, in order to see His promise fulfilled that He has stated, she must deceive, manipulate, and otherwise sin to help God out. Circumstances are looking bad. The situation is getting worse. There is something threatening the very thing that God says we're going to have. But instead of waiting and trusting in God's ways, right? God's timing, God's ways, well, I need to make my own way. Because God's path doesn't look like it's leading exactly where He said it would. Let me help him. So you got Isaac trying to skirt work outside of God's stated will, and you got Rebecca not trusting God's will and making her own way to make sure it happens. Both got control issues. Both unwilling to trust that God knows best, that God is sovereign, and both believing that they can actually work in many ways against God. Well, food and costume prepared, Jacob goes to his blind dad, and because his voice doesn't sound like Esau, Isaac asks, who are you? Amazing that no one seems to trust anyone in this family. Isaac doesn't trust Rebecca. Rebecca doesn't trust Isaac. Isaac doesn't trust his sons. And that makes sense when you think about like what governs a family. When your family is governed by the will of the father or the will of the mother, as opposed to the will of God that they're both submitted to, it would be a very insecure and scary place to live. No one would trust anyone because what's your standard of truth? And so you have all these different people vying for authority, trying to manipulate and get their way to the point where his son comes up to him whom he has already asked to come to him and he doesn't or isn't sure it's actually him. Possibly he didn't recognize the voice because he hadn't spent much time with Jacob. Who knows? But some commentators, interestingly, really disagree on, on this passage and they, they try to make Rebecca and Jacob out to be kind of the heroes, the ones who are godly and devoted to seeing the Lord's will fulfilled. I guess no matter how much you have to sin in order for that to happen, it seems difficult for me that deceiving your father and lying four different times in addition to the whole masquerade would be anything but godly. But that's exactly what Jacob does. He asks him, Isaac, going, how did you find this so quickly? Like that seemed like you went out, you hunt, you prepared. Like that was really fast. How did you do that so quickly? And Jacob takes his deception a bit deeper into darkness by including God into it. Well, the, the Lord blessed me. The Lord is the one who brought me to success. Isaac may be blind, but he ain't dumb. He's like, hmm, yeah, right. So, not convinced, 
He says, why don't you come near so I can, I can smell you and feel you. And you got to think, man, first of all, Esau must have just, just stunk. He must have just stunk. Like, it wasn't like he was like hunting around the wildflowers, right? He's like out there rubbing yak urine on himself, making sure he can get whatever game he's after. But man, he must have been a hairy dude. And I'm a hairy dude, but I don't got goat fur on my hands or my neck, right? Like, goat, like a, a slab of goat fur, like a pretty hairy hand here. You put it on there like, yeah, you're a hairy dude. Like, not like Esau. He puts his hand, it's not even like, oh, come on, that's fake goat fur. It's like, hmm, you've been shaving Esau? I mean, it's like, seriously, furry. But he, he buys into it. He can't see, which is why they say he's, you know, blind, so to speak. But he smells and feels, okay, smells feels like him. And he goes, well, the voice sounds like Jacob, but man, you feel like, you feel like Esau. So finally, it persuades him. He says, okay, bring me, bring me my meal. Bring it to me. But then he interestingly asks a fourth time, are you really Esau? Like, isn't he convinced? It's like, why? Why are you really Esau? It's almost as if Jacob has one last opportunity. One last opportunity to speak the truth. No matter how deep a hole he's dug, he's got one more chance to kind of get out of it. You go, no, I'm, I'm Jacob. This is, this is mom's idea, you know, and like, go, go on. But no, he doesn't. For the fourth time, instead of speaking what is true, he speaks his own truth. Yep, I am. I'm Esau. And what you have with Jacob, four different times the opportunity. You had Isaac. Nope, not your will, Lord. My will be done. You had Rebecca. Not your ways, Lord. My ways be done. And now you have Jacob. Not your truth, but mine. Yep, I'm Esau. And so, Isaac fills his belly, drinks a bunch of wine, brings his son next to him, kisses him, and then like one last sniff test. Okay, just making sure what it says as he smells him. All right, there's the yak. Here we go. And he blesses him. And the, the blessing is different than the birthright, right? The birthright was related to material wealth. Okay, so material inheritance, and that's already been set. The blessing is very different. And the blessing isn't like just dad's best wishes. I hope you guys, you grow up, you have godly wives, and everything goes well. Be gone. It's not like that. It's a very special and divinely ordained thing. It's an it's a unalterable promise that is fulfilled by God. The blessing is a declaration of what God is going to do. It's in many ways very prophetic based on the faith of the Father to usher that blessing. And he basically says, who he thinks to Esau, but to Jacob, may God give you spiritual and physical nourishment. May nations serve you. Let your brothers bow down to you. Let your enemies be cursed and your allies be blessed. Essentially, he says, I want you to have prosperity and power and protection. God ordained, divinely authorized prosperity, power, and protection. 
Jacob, in many ways, is going to be God's elect in the same way that Abraham was favored by God. And this is obviously not what Isaac thought he was doing. But despite Isaac's attempts to affirm his own will, God confirms his own. The younger is, ends up greater than the older, and the older ends up serving the younger. And God rejected who was Esau, a spoiled overachiever, and he chose a sheltered deceiver. Both seem like pretty bad options. And it's incredibly, just a side note, remember, as you, if you read Romans 9, you're going to see Jacob and Esau come up. And they talk about this idea of, of, of God loving one and hating the other as if like one was more lovable and one was more hate. They're both pretty bad. And to that point, he brings up Pharaoh. And we talk about Pharaoh a lot, and we read about Pharaoh in Exodus, and it talks about God hardening his heart, and like, oh, how can we harden his heart? It's so bad. Let's be really clear about something. There is no such thing as a soft heart apart from God. There are only hard hearts. And God hardens a heart because even a hard heart will, okay, tap out. I tap out. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to love you, but I'll give up at least. A soft heart is a result of God softening a heart. There are only sinners. There are only people who love themselves and not love God until God shows grace. Jacob and Esau, Rebecca and Isaac, they're all bad. But God chooses to fulfill His plan by showing grace to Jacob. He does not deserve it. But through Isaac's attempt to control God replaces Isaac's favorite son with his favorite son. But that's not the end of the story. As soon as Isaac finishes blessing Jacob, he's sneaking out, and Esau comes in with all his elk steaks prepared. Here you go, Father, just like you like it. He comes to his father, says, I'm ready for the blessing in a blind. Isaac realizes, what, who are you? I'm, e I'm Esau. Uh-oh. And the text says that Isaac trembles violently. What an interesting response. Got to wonder what he's feeling right there. Anger, frustration, perhaps just humility. Because I think in that moment, Esau's realized you can't control God. You can't fight God. Esau is equally shocked, but also angry at his brother, who he calls the cheater. He's been cheated out of his birthright, in his opinion, and now he's been cheated out of his blessing, though ironically, with regards to his birthright, he was the one who sold his birthright for stew, and he was the one who, in this little private ceremony, way far in advance of when it should be, was prepared to cheat his brother. He asks his father, Do you, don't you have any extra blessing for me? Can't you just bless me instead? Can't you take it away? And he says, nope, what's done is done. And weeping and wailing and begging, please, some blessing. And so Isaac obliges. And he doesn't really give him a blessing as much as he affirms the other one. It's like an anti-blessing. He's like, well, um, yeah, you're going to serve your brother. 
and you're not going to prosper like he is. You're not going to be as powerful as he is. And you're not even going to be protected as he is. And while it's tempting, as I said, to make heroes and villains, which different commentators do, like, well, he's better than him, and they're trying to do this. Like, if you just kind of view them all as villains and God is the hero, you'll probably do better. Because what's amazing about God and amazing about his sovereignty is that he plans ahead for our failure. He plans for our uh, disobedience. He plans for our rebellion. He uses the flaws of all these four people to bring about and accomplish his plan. And even though his sovereignty employed their disobedience, right? It used their disobedience. It wasn't like, oh no, didn't see that coming. He knew it was coming. He expected it. He was greater than it. These individuals still remain responsible for the rebellion and their efforts to try and control God, to try and do it their way according to their will and, and with their truth, they end up facing consequences of trying to do that. Isaac's life is basically made really bitter by his favored son's Canaanite marriages. Basically, his daughter-in-laws make his life pure hell. You got Rebecca, who hoping to have her favored son blessed, I bet she didn't expect or plan that she likely never ever saw Jacob again after this time. It's recorded that she passed away and it's likely passed away before he returned home. Esau, his life, according to the blessing and then history that we see unfold, is filled with violence and bitterness. And Jacob would end up living in fear of his brother most of his life. And more than that, the cheat would reap what he had sown and he would be cheated multiple times. And though it's tempting to empathize with Esau a little bit more than the others, because you're like, well, gosh, man, he just really got kind of taken on that twice. The Bible never empathizes with him. Hebrews chapter 12 says this about Esau. It says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a really important verse. The holiness with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. He says, For you know that afterward, when he, Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, so he sells his birthright for one meal, afterward, in the future, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The Bible warns us to seek for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And Esau is, in the same text, used as an example of someone who is unholy, who didn't inherit the blessing because he gave away his identity for a bowl of soup. When Esau traded his birthright, he did much more than just reject financial inheritance for a bowl of stew. He rejected 
the satisfaction and the glory of God's future grace for what was immediate, for immediate and fleshly and temporary satisfaction. Now, afterwards, it says, he realized what he had done. When he didn't get the blessing, he realized the mistake he had made. But it was too late. And it says, Esau even sought the blessing with tears and wept bitterly. But here's something that is really important to know, according to 2 Corinthians 7, that just because they're tears doesn't mean that there's repentance. That there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. That we need to understand why exactly Esau is weeping. In truth, he did seek something with tears, but he was seeking and weeping for and desiring a change of mind in his dad and not actually a change of heart in relationship with God. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord, is more than just one action. We're talking about a heart disposition of one who surrenders complete control to God and even humbly receives your mistakes or the ways that God goes that are different than what you wanted or the disappointments and the losses you have as His discipline to help you grow. Trusting in that sovereignty, trusting in His control, and that is not what Esau is doing. Now, the question is, how do we do that? How do we live a life where we truly are surrendered to God's control? Well, blessings like Isaac gave to Jacob are usually offered um, to all of the sons at the end of their life as an indication of what's going to happen to them in the future. And so if you go to the end of Genesis, you'll see uh, Jacob does this for 12 of his sons. In the same way, he doesn't do it privately and secretly or uh, way in advance. He does it near the end of his life. He brings his 12 sons together and he blesses each and every one of them from oldest to youngest. And when he gets to his son Judah, he says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Scepter, royalty, leadership nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples, including his brothers. In other words, the future son of Judah, future grandson of Jacob, future great-grandson of Isaac, future great-great-grandson of Abraham would one day be king and fulfill all of God's promises. That was not, well, we hope this happens. It was, this is a prophetic declaration of what's going to happen as we're coming from the Father's blessing. So fast forward several thousand years as Jews are waiting for this promised king, this line of Judah, you have great hostility between two peoples, Israel and Edom. Or Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and Esau from whom Edom came. You still have this fight going on. You still have this great hatred going on from brother, older brother to younger brother. This hostility would ebb and flow over the years between these two people and then a man named Jesus 
would enter the scene. A man born from the line of Jacob, specifically from the tribe of Judah, who was, as we know, more than a man. He was the son of God. And this, quote, son of Jacob was born at a time when another son, the son of Esau, was actually king. His name was Herod. Herod was from the tribe of Edom. Well, not from the tribe of Edom, from the line of Esau, and he was an Edomite. In 47 B.C., so you think about it, 47 B.C., Jesus is born at like maybe zero, somewhere around there, right? Rome actually appointed a man named Antipater, the son of the Edomite governor of Edom, to be governor of Judea. And over a series of events in 37 B.C., Herod was titled King of the Jews. His name, as we know, was Herod the Great. And this was the same Herod, the king of Edom, the son of Esau, who, in trying to seek out the son of Jacob, slaughtered toddlers in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Jesus. The hatred of Esau continued. But after the death of Herod the Great, his territory was split into three, and it was one for each of his sons, and one of his sons named Herod Antipas, he was the one who tried Jesus. He was also a son of Edom, or son of Esau. But in this case, unlike the Jacob we first see, this Jacob didn't run. The greater Jacob didn't try and deceive. The greater Jacob didn't try to hide. He didn't attempt to impose his will or control his way so that he could make sure that the promised blessings that were really from Jacob, which were from the Lord of prosperity, and power, and protection. Those promises that were His, He didn't fight to get them. On the contrary, He gave up all three of them. He gave up prosperity. He gave up power. He gave up protection. And in submission to the will of God, and submission to the ways of God, of which were shocking to the disciples and everyone else, Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross to die the sins of those He loved. He emptied Himself and became poor so that we might become rich. He humbled Himself low so that we could be lifted up high. He embraced death so that we might have life. You see that Jesus relinquished control to the Lord. And in doing so, He chose God's birthright. He chose God's will. He chose God's way. He chose God's truth. Though He could have said many other things to get Him out of it. And though doing that got Him rejected by the world, and in many ways people would see how He lost control. In doing that, He was received by the Lord. He surrendered His life to be taken from Him. And in doing that, we can surrender our life to Him. Even though His was the path to death of all earthly blessings, surrender of control to the Lord is often death to earthly blessings and earthly comfort. It is also the path beyond death and beyond loss to resurrection. Surrendering your life to the will and the way of God is not the way to lose your life. It is the way to find it. And the Lord is calling us to relinquish control. 
as things get difficult, as we look and go, man, I know God has promised this, but I don't like the way this is unfolding. He asks us to surrender our lives and to trust Him. To trust in His sovereignty. To trust in His truth, though it's unpopular. To trust in His ways, though they're not always comfortable. And they don't always make sense. To trust in His stated promise that He is a God who can actually fulfill it, even if we don't fully understand how that's going to happen. And we come to this table, and we come every week, and we constantly say this is the most important part because something happens here. You, you certainly, it's beautiful to sing God's you know, songs and, and, and delight in what He's done. It's awesome to hear God's Word proclaimed. But as you come here, this is a place where, you, where in many ways you meet God. And we come through, and many of us go through this routine of like, oh, I'm going to take the bread, that's the body of Jesus, and I'm going to dip it in the wine, that's the blood of Jesus. And yes, it is for those who do believe that, who do believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins that they're guilty of, who do believe that Jesus lived a perfect life that He gives to us freely, and we know that He's victorious over death because of the resurrection. Yes, that is who it's for. But it's also for those who come every single week to remind themselves, I surrender. That as your weeks go, in the way you didn't expect, as you begin to see those things that God's promised you threatened, as you begin to be tempted to disbelieve or not speak God's truth and be silent or make up stuff, it is the table we come and say, I relinquish control. That as you take that bread, you're not just receiving, you're declaring that, Lord, I submit to your will. I submit to your ways and I receive your kingdom as it comes on a daily basis, not in some ethereal way. And I trust in your truth alone. It's the table of surrender. And I would ask you to consider that as you come up. This, don't just go through the motions, but come as one who is surrendering their life and your life includes everything. You are surrendering your life because of the one who surrendered it all for you, more than you ever could surrender for him. He gave himself for you. Give yourself to him and trust that he's in control. Trying to wrestle control, you end up just fighting against God. Instead of trying to do that, just receive and trust that he knows what he's doing. Let's pray.